0: If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies
1: never
2: made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Uh, this is not Bill Shatner, but if you like the 430 movie, you'll love Inglorious Trexperts. Available wherever you listen to the 430 movie. You might even find out what God needs with a starship. It's the podcast for Star Trek fans with a life.
0: Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a Star Trek fan and you haven't already picked up the hardcover edition of the 50-Year Mission, it's time for you to go out and get the paperback version of the 50-Year Mission, which is just out in paperback from St. Martin's Press. This is the complete oral history of Star Trek, the first 25 years, from me and Ed Gross. And if you think you know everything there is to know about Star Trek, think again. The 50-Year Mission, out in paperback now. And if you can't read, the audiobook is still available. Hey, are you Darren Doctorman from the 430 movie? Why, Why? yes, I am. Well, I recognize you because I have the Electric Now app, and I get to see all these great Electric Surge podcasts on video for the first time ever. I'm delighted. I'm delighted that uh, you came up to me and said hello. Well, I got to tell you, how can I watch all these incredible podcasts like Inglorious Trexperts, The Best Movies Never Made, and uh, other things? Well, you
3: can find us on uh, Distro and on uh, uh, the Electric Now
0: app. And Stir.
3: And Stir. See, I I, I knew you knew it.
0: I did know. Because I'm not really a stranger (laughs) on the street. I'm Mark A. Altman, your (laughs) co-host. Well, maybe I should have been watching these podcasts all along. I would have recognized you. Join us on Electric Now, currently streaming on Distro TV and Stir and coming soon to the Electric Now app. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Doctorman. and we are the Inglorious Experts. And all year long, we have been celebrating the 40th anniversary of Star Trek The Motion Picture. And it's been a fascinating road. I mean, obviously, uh, the making of that... Uh, Movie was filled with just incredible stories, and I would say heroes and villains. And you know, <laughs> I give you a Don LaFontaine introduction, but by now you kind of know, um, or you think you know, everything there is to know about uh, uh, that remarkable story, and probably more uh, than you ever want to know about blind bidding. But uh, I, I'm i so thrilled because uh, today, um, you know, often we've heard from people who secondhand knowledge or people who are on the periphery. Um, uh, but uh, today we have the uh, production executive who was there at the time and not only involved with Star Trek, the motion picture, but that era at Paramount, there's so many great movies. Uh, I mean, movies that We grew up on a Saturday Night Fever, Grease, Heaven Can Wait, which I adore, Uh, the great uh, uh, Buck Henry movie with Warren Beatty and Julie Christie. And, of course, I don't know why nobody's remade this. I actually, as a total aside, we we pitched this at Paramount a, a year or two ago doing a remake of Foul Play, and I love Foul Play. Can't kill the do the plot to kill the pope anymore, but uh, other than that, it's uh, I it's just another one of my beloved uh, beloved movies uh, from from that era. Um, so uh, we're thrilled to welcome Tom Perry to to uh, the Inglorious Trexfords, and um, once again joining us, uh, he's the writer of uh, such movies as Thor and X Men First Class. He's a writer producer on such shows as Lore and Fringe, and other shows that shall not be <laughs> named, uh, and that of course is Ashley Edwin Miller. Welcome back, Ashley. Thank you for having me. So, uh, hello, ta- Tom.
2: <laughs> Hi, guys. <You> know,
0: <laughs> before we jump into the the, the whole uh, the traumatic PTSD of making Star Trek the motion picture, um, tell us a little bit about. Um, your background. I mean, You started at United Artists during the heyday. It was right on the heels of UA was just making incredible films. Um, they had done the Beatles films earlier. They, they still had their deal with uh, Woody Allen before the, uh, the, the management left to start Orion and then Woody went over there. Um, but, I mean, just a great series of movies. I mean, Rocky, which won uh, Best Picture in 76 and... Uh, Scorsese's New York, New York. It's no Marvel movie, but it's... uh, No, I'm kidding. I I actually love New York, New York. Uh, We're not going to start that conversation again uh, because as far as I'm concerned, Scorsese can say whatever he wants about anything because he's a freaking genius. Um, So uh, tell us a little bit about what drew you to the film industry and uh, you're starting your career over at United Artists. Um,
2: Well, I graduated from college in 1974 He's very uh,
0: modest. He graduated from Harvard. From Harvard, but yes, <laughs> <so. laughs> Harvard. Harvard. Uh, I Harvard. I
2: graduated from college in 1974. Um, I was a little older than most of my peers. I was 25 when I got out, mm-hmm. or 24, 25. Um, I had started in '67, um, and uh, I didn't even finish the first semester, uh, and I uh, dropped out and joined the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Um, not the smartest thing I've ever done, but um, it was. And the day that I was sworn in was the day before Tet Offensive oh, in nice. February of 1968. And, um, but I was lucky. Um, I played the French horn, and they put me in a band. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, uh, And I was lucky a second time because I didn't get sent to Vietnam, even though there were bands in Vietnam.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and those bands were double strength instead of uh, 30, um, 30 musicians. There were 60 and half of them would be out on patrol uh, killing, um, killing uh, uh, as we used to call it. Well, I won't say it because it's not polite, but killing North Vietnamese uh, and the other half of the band would be playing. And then a couple of days later, they'd switch. Wow! So you could actually be
0: killed playing in the band. See, I want to see wow. that version of Apocalypse now, right. instead right. Yes. of the Playboy Bunnies and the uh, Clarence Clearwater revival. I want to see you guys playing. Uh, that would have been interesting. Yeah,
2: it was, and I've dined out on those stories for fifty years. Um, and damn, um, town uh, races
1: scares the shit out of Charlie. That's right. I
2: uh, yes, yes. Um, um, I I uh, so um, luckily I did not have to go, uh, but um, I ended up uh, playing. Our band ended up playing in Richard Nixon's inauguration. Um, and we were marching uh, just behind his car, and it was a huge, um, you know, time of protest in the United States. And so, um, the uh, the viewing stands along Pennsylvania Avenue were filled with his supporters. But at every intersection, there were uh, protesters. So um, he was. It was like a jack in the box. Um, he uh, was waving um, out, of the, uh, out of the sunroof uh, of the limousine, um, and he'd get to the corner, and he'd go, go back, back down inside. Yeah. The sunroof would close, and he would zoom to the other side of the intersection wow. because there were all of these protesters screaming and yelling. So um, that was my experience. Uh, and, and then um, I got out and uh, bought a motorcycle in Germany and spent a year on a motorcycle, uh, <laughs> and uh, with my one-piece leather jumpsuit. Uh, and uh, at the end of that, I went back to college, and I had to start over again. Mm. So by the time, so I was 21 when I got
0: back. And so so you, you indulged your Steve McQueen fetish, you figure, I'm going to go right. around journey out of me. <laughs> yes, all of that out of me.
2: <laughs> and uh, I came back to school, and I decided that I was going to be the person that I wanted to be as opposed to the person my parents wanted me to be. Right. Um, and I'd always loved the theater, so I started working in the theater and I did, uh, I did um, lighting design and scene design and then realized I couldn't draw um, mm-hmm. and ended up um, producing. And by my senior year, I had produced The Hasty Pudding Show. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of gave me the impetus to think, oh, maybe I can get to Broadway. The problem in 1974, though, is that Broadway was going through one of its many iterations of dying out. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mentor at school said, well, you know, why don't you go out to Hollywood and make movies? And I said, well, I don't know anything about movies. And he said, well, it doesn't matter. You know, you know how to produce. You you know, you're, you have that kind of personality. So I sat down and I wrote a bunch of letters. And um, in the week before uh, commencement, I... Um, Flew out here to Los Angeles and um, out of the, I think, 150 people I'd written to, five or six of them had actually written back and um, had said, you know, if you're in town, come on in and we can talk. Uh, one of those people was Bob Wise. Oh, wow. And uh, at the time, he was, I met him at his office uh, at Universal. He was in post-production on... Um, On the Hindenburg, Mm -hmm. and he said, uh, "Well, I'd hire you, but I don't have a project. Uh, You know, I don't have my next project." Um, But um, I was passed around um, by various uh, people that I talked to. I mean, who would who would answer my letters? And one of them was Terry Malick, Terrence Malick. who he I, had
0: plenty to do at the time. He he, he didn't make films to, for 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 a very long time. This is after Badlands, right? And, that's right. It was yeah. after
2: Badlands, but it was before um, Heaven. Oh oh, Days of Heaven. David, yeah, Days yeah, of yeah, Heaven. Yeah, okay. yes. um, and he was a you know he was a brilliant young rising uh, filmmaker. And um, the other person um, who um, answered my re- letter was Michael Ritchie. Huh. Um, mm-hmm. And and um, both of them had been Harvard graduates, and I think that's probably why. But there was such a small group of Harvard graduates who had actually gone into movies. You could actually count them Mm. on one hand. Um, There were the two of them. There was Lee Rosenberg, who was an agent. There Mm. was uh, Edgar Sherrick, who was a producer. Um, And that was it. There wasn't anybody else. Um, So I was pretty unusual at the time. Here was an Ivy League graduate who wanted to go into movies. And most of the people who wanted to go into movies you know, were, um, there weren't even any cinema schools back then. Right. So most of the people were, um, you know, it was nepotistic. There were sons and daughters, or mostly sons, because, you know, there weren't a lot of women in the business. Anyway, uh, Terry Malick said to me, well, you know, I have an agent, or my former agent. He just became head of United Artists on the West Coast, and I'm going to call him up, and maybe you should go in and see him if he's interested. So I went in and um, he said to me, um, he said, well, you know, if you, you know, he said, I might have a job for you when you come back, um, if you get back here after you graduate. And I thought, well, that was enough for to, to get me out here. Right. Sure. And when I arrived, um, he, um, uh, uh, Michael Ritchie said to me, if he doesn't give you a job, I will as the film courier, because they were shooting, um, the movie that was about uh, uh, the beauty pageants. I can't remember. Oh, what it was. a smile. Uh, yes, yeah, smile. Yeah. They were shooting smile up in Santa Rosa, and they needed somebody to carry the um, the undeveloped film back and forth. Sure. So, you know, that was going to be my job. Um, but Mike Medavoy hired me, and um, that was at United Artists. And it was an amazing time to be there, as you mentioned. Um, This had nothing to do with me. I was just a kid in the office. But we won the Academy Award in 1975 for Rocky, Mm -hmm. 76 for Cuckoo's Nest, and 77 for Annie Hall.
0: See, that is a very un-Hollywood thing to do, Tom, you know, not to take credit. You know, I mean, you carried the film on small, but you guys think, you know, and I won the Oscar for Annie Hall. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think it's probably
2: why I wasn't all that successful in the movie business because i didn't have that killer instinct to you know to take all of the credit for myself anyway (laughs) um so i went to work for mike and i was his uh i was the kid in the office and um united artists uh was a a, a company uh that um there was not a lot of hierarchy in other words i had access to arthur Krim, who was the you know the chairman of the studio he'd come out once or twice a month for a week. Uh, There was a whole other East Coast production um, uh, structure. And our slate was kind of divided up between the two of us, between the two offices. And uh, we made 15 movies a year. And we never had in development any more than about 40 to 45 pictures. Mm -hmm. So that a producer who brought a picture in and it was put into development. Had a thirty percent chance of getting their film made, and that was pretty much the way Hollywood worked in those days. Um, and producers would um, be paid um, in the development process approximately a third of their production um, of their of their production fee. So if you had you know three movies in development, then you could you know, earn a decent living with then one of them or two of them, you know, one of them um, getting made. Now, Um, for
0: people who aren't in the business, I just want to stop them uh, so they can appreciate how unbelievable that is. Because now, basically, when a uh, script gets optioned, the, the writer gets paid, but the producer never sees a dime until the movie goes into production and then they get their producer's fees. So you could have a ton of movies that are optioned and still be making absolutely no money. And if they don't get made, you never will. And so what you're saying is 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 incredible that they're getting a third of their fees just off having the material option because the studios re- felt relatively good about the chances of it going yes, into production. that's
2: correct. And, and there was a... Um, and the way that United Artists worked um, was that uh, Arthur Krim um, believed uh, in making projects that filmmakers brought to him. He didn't want the studio to generate a project because he was always fearful that that any filmmaker who had been hired um, was going to be um, was not going to have their heart and soul in the project. Whereas if you develop the project yourself, you're passionate about it. Right. And you're more willing to stick with it, and you're more willing to take creative risks. Um, so um, we never, the studio United Artists, never optioned books ourselves. We never, um, uh, we never sat around and said, "Well, what kind of movies do we want to make?" We were always there um, at the uh, um, at the mercy of um, the creative filmmakers who brought projects to us, and. What Arthur um, – I would drive Arthur around when he would come out. I had a little Chevy Vega station wagon. I mean, this is how modest a man he was. And I was assigned uh, to be in the car driving him. And he would sit in the front seat. And I took the opportunity of asking him, you know, how do you make – what kind of decisions? How do you make these decisions when you're making pictures? And he said, well, first of all, it's the filmmaker. And he said, when, when my, my partners and I bought United Artists in 1952, um, filmmakers were producers. Mm-hmm. He said, today they are directors. Um, and um, a, a filmmaker um, is somebody who um, is the uh, engine behind the project. Um, and so we're looking for filmmakers um, who bring us the projects that they're passionate about. Now you know a lot of those projects aren't viable because they're passion projects. But generally speaking, a passion project is going to be more interesting for us. Mm-hmm. So he said, um, "I want to work with filmmakers um, who um, who um, have a track record of success, whose pictures I really um, want to be you know want to be involved with." He said, "But he said you have to be very careful." He said you don't want to work with a filmmaker after they've had a big success because they are going to be more risk-averse. He said, I would like to work with filmmakers who I judge a great filmmaker based on the best work they've ever done, not the last one. Mm. And I would rather be in in business with a filmmaker after they've had um, a big failure because they're much hungrier at that point. So now you guys are sitting here going, wow, what kind of business was that yeah. <laughs> that must have been unbelievable to be in that business well take a look at the kinds of pictures that were being made at yeah. the time I mean it was it was it was people like Arthur Krim uh, and Eric Pleskow um, you know who uh, with the president uh, I mean Krim was the chairman Eric was the, the president and <clears throat> they were making these pictures and so Eric uh, so so uh, Arthur would say to me he said to me so we we do this based on you know the filmmaker first Is this a person we want to work with? Secondly, they bring us a project. Are we excited about the script? And it's about the script. It's not about the idea. It's about the script. And if we think the script is good um, and we think it's not quite there yet, we want them to keep working on it, draft after draft after draft, and that's what we're paying for. Mm -hmm. Um, And then um, we all sit down and it becomes this – it's a – it's a decision process about um, the cost of the picture, the 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 um, the budget, and the cast um, and the genre. And he said, he said, there's no exact science to it. You just have to do this based on your gut. Mm-hmm. But the but um, um, uh, and then once we tell them to go ahead, once the script is ready and um, we have a budget that we can all agree on and we've got a cast that, that works for all of us, then I don't want to see the picture until a director's cut. We do not look at dailies here. There isn't any reason to look at dailies. You look at dailies and you can't tell whether the movie's any good or not because the way that the movie is structured is in the head of the director and obviously the editor as well. So I just want to see it When he's got a cut that he thinks is ready for us. So we never sat in dailies. And when I then went to Paramount afterwards and I had to sit in dailies every day, I understood exactly why he didn't want us to sit in dailies Mm -hmm. because there is no way you can tell whether the movie is working or not.
0: I was was going to say this being your first gig. Did you have a sense of how unique United Artists was because of course they were the outlier and there's a reason that people like Metavoy and Pleskow, and and and, and they, they they then went you know when Transamerica bought United Artists and they turned it into a factory they all left to start Orion because that no longer applied it was all cookie well, cutter that's, like that's, films that's interesting be-
2: that's not quite the um the timeline because when I got there Transamerica had already bought the oh, company okay. Okay, um, and it was Transamerica that told Mike Metivoy that I couldn't be paid more than $150 a week. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> wow! <laughs> <laughs> so um, that was, uh, and and Mike, you know, was embarrassed by that. He said, you know, I we should be able to pay her more than that. So he said, what you should do, Tom, is just put everything on your expense account, and I will, you know, and I'll I'll sign it. Mm-hmm. um and he said but I expect you you know to go out and meet people and you know and and uh and and, and get in ch- get in touch with every single young writer and young, young agent and and that's your job is you know to be the funnel for all this new talent to come into the studio um it was a it was an amazing time it was a great job to have I had no idea uh what the rest of Hollywood was like people had told me, do you really want to go to Hollywood? It's a snake pit. People are horrible. <laughs> and here I was at this company that actually wanted to hear my opinion. Um, I was articulate, not, you know, much more articulate then than I am now. Um, I um, I wrote well because I had been trained to write well. And I had a pretty good instinct about story, but I didn't have the tools. I didn't understand exactly why I felt this way. And if I was reaching for, well, you know, talking with a writer or a director about why I didn't think something worked. I, I didn't have the vocabulary. So um sitting with Marty Scorsese uh um when he brought us the script Major from Gold? New York, New York. Oh, New York, New York,
0: yeah.
2: Um and uh <laughs> Mike Mike loved having me in these meetings because he would turn to me and he would say, "Well, so Tom, what do you think?" Um you know, my job had been to gather his notes and um and Marsha Nassiter's notes. They were the three people in the office. And I would do the I would do my own notes and my job was to collate them all and then when the filmmaker came in, I would go through the notes. So, I'm going through these notes with um with, uh, and with Marty Scorsese, and, and it was Erwin Winkler and um, Bob Chardoff, right. who were the two producers. And we're sitting there, and I'm reading through the notes, and I could tell that Marty was really upset, because here is this 25-year-old kid who's telling him, you know, what I thought about the movie. And, you know, I didn't have any, um, you know, I was, I was pretty arrogant in those days. So, you know, this kid who would come out of Harvard and just thought he knew everything, right? Um, and Marty finally said, I, I don't have to listen to this. This is bullshit. You know, you, you're just a kid. <laughs> and there was a silence in the room and Mike turned to Marty and said, well, Marty, I actually happen to agree with him. <laughs> then he said, uh, Tom, don't forget after work to pick up my laundry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Tom went to Harvard. <laughs> that was his way of, you know, kind of um, bragging that he had this smart kid working for him, but, yeah.
0: you know, who, who would do the... We'll uh, give a little take. Yeah, he <laughs> he would, uh, yes. That's so funny. I mean, people don't realize that the the risks that UA in particular took. I mean, you look at back in the 60s, you know, when Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman walked in with James Bond and they couldn't get arrested. And UA, you know, jumps at it. And, you know, even when Columbia... Uh, who had had the deal with uh, Cubby? Um, you know, was basically passing or offering him next to nothing, and they said, "No, we want to do this." And of course, look at what it led to. But I mean, you're talking about an era. And then you know, Woody Allen, you know, who was basically stand up and was a supporting actor, and you know, uh, in in these you know movies for Charlie Feldman. and It's like. To give him the freedom that you get, I mean, and he makes, you know, everything from Love and Death to Annie Hall to Manhattan. I mean, it's un, un, unbelievable. That would this stuff would never happen today, yeah, right? Um, and and here here's something
2: that people ask me a lot today: um, Why is it that movies um, are? And Ashley, my apologies because because <laughs> yeah. you're one of the you're one of the perpetrators of this writing <laughs> writing uh, writing uh, uh, big action um, you know um, uh, uh, action noisy action uh, uh, franchise movies, but most people and a lot of critics seem to blame the studios for this. Why aren't the studios smarter? Why can't they do more sophisticated movies? Well, the movie studios have been businesses, you know. From, you know, back in the early 1900s. And they um, they make movies for their audience. Right. They don't make movies for themselves. Um, and uh, in 1974, when I got into the business, and this was before there was any home video, right. um, so the, the vast majority of uh, revenue to the studios came from uh, the box office, theatrical release. Um 80 per somewhere between 80 to 85 percent of the revenue um, of the worldwide revenue came from North America. 90 percent from the US and 10 percent from Canada. Mm. The other 15 to 20 percent came from the rest of the world. So the studios were making movies for the American audience. The rest of the world was consuming those movies which is why the American story and American lifestyle became such an important um, part of America's um, uh, America's uh, reach, a cultural reach. That began to change or the first signs of that, that first signs of that change were 1977 and 1978 with Star Wars and Jaws. When the studios sat up and realized that a big chunk of their income every year could come from a blockbuster movie. That had never really happened before. On that scale, there had been blockbuster movies, but nothing on the scale of Star Wars and, and Jaws. So the studio started looking for pictures like that. Um, you know, these tentpole movies that they could hang their entire, um, their entire slate on. And um, the movies, those movies um, tend to be um, um, less about character, more about action, less about dialogue, um, and um, they um, are easier for um, audiences around the world to consume um, if there is less complexity. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, by the mid-90s, the handwriting was on the wall. And I discovered that the stuff that I wanted to make, that I brought me into the movie business, was harder and harder and harder to make. And I left the business in 1996 mm. and went into computer games.
0: Interesting <laughs> transition. Um, an interesting transition, <laughs> yeah, an interesting transition <laughs> yes. Um,
2: today, today, the, the uh, numbers are flipped completely. Uh, 15 to 20% of the worldwide box office comes from North America. The rest of it comes from the rest of the world. So, why do you think the studios are making the kind of movies they make? Right. They make them for their audience. They don't make them for critics. They don't make them for themselves. Sure, you know, you've got like focus features um, at Universal um, or um, whatever. Fox yeah, Sony is. Pictures Classics. Right. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. No. And and yes, those 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 uh, projects, the projects that come out of those divisions. Um, are labors of love that the executives um are making really for themselves so that they can go to the academy awards and pat themselves on the back
0: and say look see i'm still relevant right. but they're not zeitgeist changers in the way midnight cowboy was or network was no no no, absolutely yeah. absolutely so all of the um
2: i'm sorry i'm getting way off track here no but, no it's okay sorry. we'll get to star trek don't um, <laughs> we'll get to star trek <laughs> um, <laughs> um, what happened to all of those wonderful filmmakers Um, Who today, you know, can't get arrested at the studios. They can't, their movies can't get made there. Well, um, luckily, um, the streaming services stepped in with HBO stepping in 20 years ago with uh, The Sopranos. And today we now have the golden age of what I consider narrative entertainment. Um, And all of the best... Again, apologies, Ashley. Um, uh, all of the best um, uh, filmmakers are making uh, projects for streaming. Now, who, what filmmaker wouldn't want the opportunity to develop characters over ten, twelve, sixteen hours? Right. And and somebody who hadn't done it before. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> very, very hard to do well. Yeah. And when you find – when you do have somebody who does it well, let's say like Vince Gilligan, right, with uh, Breaking Bad, he then tries to make a movie and he can't quite do it well because he doesn't understand the balance that you have in a two-hour film of – of just the right amount of character development and just the right amount of plot, mm-hmm. very very hard. It's actually harder to do mm-hmm. than it is when you're making 16 hours of of um, you know of a of a serial. Um, so um, he is a fabulous uh, character development person, um, and um, I thought the movie was good, but it did not have the kind of um, of uh, action set pieces that. Uh, Prop, you know, are propulsive and that drive a story along. He really only had one of them, mm-hmm. um, so um, um, it's harder than it looks to make a great picture.
0: My feeling, though, with El Camino was that he conflated the experience of doing Breaking Bad, which was such a great experience for him and the people that he worked with and the love for that 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 that, that show, and then also it's like. You know who's giving Vince this kind of carte blanche to do whatever he wants as a feature, and so he you know he cashed in that chit to do this movie. But did we really need El Camino? As much as it's great to see those characters yeah, again, sure. and of it's course. very competently done and very well done, but you know was it necessary? Probably not. But it's right. it's, it's it's it's. But the, the
1: point about you know the the difference in the storytelling, I think, is is really true. I mean, I've I've straddled both worlds and they're very different muscles. It's, um, I think of it like runners, you know, there's fast twitch muscle and there's slow twitch muscle, right? You very rarely find somebody who's a great sprinter and a great marathoner. Uh, and that's for, for very good reasons. It's just that, you know, to, to accomplish one, you have to give up a a bit of the others. It's, it's, you don't often find that. Um, and I I just think, I think that you're right. Like the, the structural requirement of, you know, doing a, a two hour film and really condensing that, that emotional experience into that. Um, and in some ways, shorthanding, and I don't mean that like in a cheap way, but but shorthanding the character development and really making it feel immediate versus something that unfolds over time are very different things. And, and frankly, I don't know that there are, I don't know that everybody who makes the transition from features into television does so successfully um, because I, I think there is a, I mean, if you think about a lot of shows that are in, in streaming, it's like how many of them, you know, well, I really sort of figured out like what it was by episode four. Well, Jesus Christ, it's episode four, man. Right. Like figure out what you are in episode one. Um, so it's, they are like, they don't always occupy the same person. I, I haven't seen El Camino yet. I really wanted to see it. I, I, I've heard like, you know, people say, oh, it's really great. But I think those are people who really, really, truly love Breaking Bad and just kind of wanted to be in that Breaking sure. Bad experience exactly. again.
2: Well, take a look at Marty Scorsese. When he was given um, a streaming show, um, it didn't work very well. Um, it, was, what was it? it was about the music business, wasn't it?
0: Right. Right. But he did Boardwalk Empire for HBO, which is, I think, a great, great mm-hmm. series. But then he did um, uh, the series after that, which was the music series, yeah, right. yeah, which did not work at all. Right. Uh, what right. was that? Remember the uh, one? Sorry, much. Marty.
2: Can't remember. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> but, anyway, so um, I um, um, I worked at UA for three years, and um, you know uh, it's a it's pretty much a truism that you know you you should be moving on uh, when you're in the entertainment business every two or two or three years. <laughs> so it was time, and um, I had been uh, I had a a group of friends, um, Don Simpson was one of them, uh, and he had just been hired uh, by Michael Eisner uh, to be head of production at uh, Paramount. And Michael uh, Eisner and Barry Diller had uh, been at uh, uh, ABC. Um, Barry was the head of uh, mm, I think he was the head of the network, or he was. The head of um, uh, well, he was the head of the network. I mean, ABC was not owned by anybody but ABC, and Michael Eisner uh, was um, the you know head of pro- the you know the head of programming. I think I got it right.
0: Yeah, it was before Capital Cities bought them. That's right. right yeah. Yes,
2: and um, the two of them had um, pioneered the movie of the week, right. and uh, they were coming off that you know huge success. And um, Charlie bludhorn who owned Gulf and Western and had bought Paramount, um, um, decided that uh, they would be the you know the new young uh, you know uh, kids on the block uh, in the movie business. So they had come out of TV, and um, it was Michael Eisner who basically ruined uh, film development <laughs> because he brought with him the model of um, of uh, movie of the week development. And the way the movie of the week development worked, they had to make 50 movies a year, okay? Um, there was no way for them to have their doors open for com- people to just come in and pitch. They had to actually come up with the ideas themselves. And, of course, there were a lot of people who came in and pitched. And um, you would come in and pitch um, a one-line concept. And you would either be given um, a deal uh, to write... You know, to write a script, or you know, you were shown the door. So um, their metric was that they would develop 150 of these scripts, um, and they would make they would make the least worst 50 of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. But that okay. also
0: explains why, when they were at Disney, why Touchstone Pictures and 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 Hollywood Pictures were so awful, and they just kept putting out billions of movies, and they were all awful. So.
2: If you um, uh, so, you have to remember that in television in those days, um, what got people to tune in was you looked at tele- TV guide and there were three networks. Mm-hmm. Okay, and if you were and and everything was in real time. Okay, so if you wanted to, you know, it was after dinner. And you want to sit down and watch something. You took a look at TV guide. Yeah. And how would you make the decision? It wouldn't be based on what your friends told no, you. Log line. Like in like in like in the movies. Yeah. It was the log line. It was the one line, you know, um, that got you interested. So that's what they were buying. They were buying log lines because right. it wasn't about it was it was basically the concept, or what would then were called high concept, which I always hated that term. It's really an exploitable concept. Right? It was a one liner. So they would sit there, and they would put these one-liners into development. The scripts would come in, and they would make the least worst 50 of them. Okay?
0: Well, speaking of the least worst 50 of them, <laughs> um, you know, I remember when I was talking from my book, 50 Year Mission, to um, David Picker about Star Trek, the motion picture. But By then, he had left UA, and he was mm-hmm. over at Paramount. He says, the one thing, he said, I hate science fiction, uh, and the one thing I remember about Star Trek was that Charlie Bluehorn, it was like his... The project he wanted to do the most, probably because his daughter was a Star Trek fan, um, and he's like, "When are we going to get Star Trek? When are we going to get Star Trek going?" And he said, "That's what I remember about Star Trek." So fortunately, we have somebody who remembers a lot more about this. Tell us about because obviously, we've in the past we've talked about the many iterations. It was going to be a low budget film. It was going to be a TV series. The Hughes Network fell. Uh, Paramount Network fell apart, and uh, then it was you know then it was going to be a, a feature. Um, Star Wars opened, you know, and, and and I think the the Planet of the Titans Phil Kaufman iteration predates you uh, at the studio. So tell us about. Well, I got there in April of 1977.
2: Okay, okay, and um, the um, from what I read today, the um, the movie project um, had been um, had already been like the month before. Uh, or or yeah, I, I think it was the month before the movie project had been finally um, had been finally put to rest, and there wasn't going to be a movie project anymore. Um, now e- there were six of us uh, who worked under Don Simpson, um, but we all worked for Michael Eisner. I mean, we would we would uh, be in and out of his office three or four times a day, and once a week, um, the six of us plus Don and sometimes Barry Diller. Um, we would sit um, in our staff meeting and we would go through all the projects that we were going to be, you know, that we were that we were looking to try and make. And and Michael brought with him this idea that you had to have lots and lots of projects. He, he didn't realize that I – mean, he probably did realize that we were only going to make 15 of them, but he still wanted 150 in development. Wow. And so we had 150 projects in development. There was absolutely no chance that – that you know, I mean, maybe 10% of of them would get made, and the poor producers, um, because Paramount was doing this, the other studios thought, well, maybe Paramount knows something we don't know, mm. so they all started doing it, mm-hmm. and the producers then their their fees started uh, becoming you know uh, were getting depressed, and they could no longer make a third of their fee um, based on development. After a couple of years, it became 10% of their fee. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and um, and it it was it was terrible for really good producers, because really good producers then had to go out and bulk up on projects, and yep. you couldn't be passionate anymore about you know right. having a hundred uh, having fifteen or twenty projects in development. It was Any anyway, widgets, yeah. So um, as you know, the six of us, seven of us, um, including Don, were responsible for these hundred and fifty projects. We were responsible for going out and finding them. Uh, for being the point of entry where people would come and pitch to us, um, and then once um, Michael, basically Michael, would decide what got put into development, um, we would then uh, oversee the the development process, which was you know uh, a, a draft of a script. And because there were 150 in development, we never got beyond an extra draft. Mm-hmm. Whereas at UA we would do three, four, five, six drafts until it either was right or it naturally it died a natural death. Uh, Very frustrating. Very, very frustrating. Um, However, you know, we were making 15 movies a year and which meant that um, a couple of pictures a year each of us would oversee. Um, And um, so out of the three years that I was there, I must have overseen about 30 screenplays and maybe a half a dozen films. Um, The two most memorable Films were Star Trek: The Motion Picture and Airplane. Those, are the two, those were the two. Those were the two pictures that were, that were you know, that actually you know, um, got a lot of, uh, uh, got a lot of um, uh, publicity. Right. Um, so um, it must have been a couple of months after um, Star Wars. Had come out because Star Wars came out in May of 77 and I got to Paramount in April of 77. Uh, actually, on a side note, um, <laughs> when Star Wars was in development at Fox, um, um, Dennis Stanfill, who is the chairman of Fox, put it into Turnaround. Mm-hmm. Now, you guys know what Turnaround yes. is. I don't know whether the audience knows what Turnaround is. But you're, the studio decides not to make a picture that they put money into for development. They give it back to the filmmaker. Filmmaker then has a period of time to go out and to find somebody else to make it. And if that other studio makes it, then the, the original studio gets paid back their
0: They're investment. investment of the picture.
2: Right. So Dennis Stanfield puts Star Wars into turnaround because the budget had climbed from nine million to eleven million dollars, and he thought, well, there's no way that we can possibly, you know, there's too much of a risk for us. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> George Lucas had been Mike Metavoy's client and George calls up Mike and says I've got the p- script and the turnaround I'm sending it over to you. So it was the end of the day and I knew nothing about any of this. Mike calls me into his office. He throws the script on my th- throws the script his, at me and he says read this tonight. <laughs>
0: <Wow>. <laughs> so so you read
2: Star Wars. I read Star Wars and it was crap. <laughs> How did you know no um what was what I remember so much about the script was that in the back of the script were about ten to twelve pages of all of the production designs mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. wow all of the you know of the renderings of the sets right. and I re- you know I went home and I read it and and i I wrote up a memo uh the memo was, I think we might want to do this because it could probably have the same kind of franchise possibility that the James Bond movies have.
0: You were very, very, <laughs> very prescient.
2: <laughs> and um, and um, by the time Mike and Marsha read it, which mm-hmm. was maybe later in the day or maybe the next day, um, Tom Pollock, who was George's. Um, who attorney was George's at the time, uh, attorney before he ran universal yeah. before he ran universal he was also my attorney too he liked mm-hmm. he liked getting young things um, <laughs> and representing them before they became what he thought was going to be big so um, uh, he um, huh, uh, he called up Dennis Stanfield and he said to Dennis Stanfield he said listen George can cut two million dollars out of the budget if you'd be willing to make the picture for nine million again um, however um, The deal that we would make, though, would be different. And Dennis Dennis, Dennis Sandfield said, well, what would that deal be? And he said, well, Tom said, well, what we want are all the sequel and remake rights. (laughs) Wow. And at the time, there were no sequels, there were no remakes, there there were no, uh, and we want the rights to all of of the characters. Right, the merchandising. Mm -hmm. All the merchandising rights. So it was merchandising, sequel and remake rights. Dennis Anfield thought, wow, what a great deal for us. Yeah. You, those are worthless. <laughs> so, um, and I see Dennis every once in a while. And, a I, and, I, and I have yet to actually have this conversation <laughs> with him. It's probably the single most embarrassing thing that's ever happened in his life. Uh, <laughs> because that $2 million savings cost the studio several
0: billion dollars. Yeah. Wow. Wise, Pound Foolish. They have a picture of him right there. That's right. Wow. That's right.
2: And when I left uh, United Artists, um, maybe five or six months later, seven months later to go to, to Paramount, I was going through the scripts in the script library to try and find, you know, a script that I could take or a couple of that, you know, that w- that that it wouldn't be a problem for me to take. And the Star Wars tri- script was gone. Oh. Somebody had stolen it. <laughs> uh, anyway the movie when it came uh, when the movie was done tom Pollock called me up and said would you like to come because you were an early supporter of this would you like to come to the cast and crew screening um so i uh they they held it at the academy um and uh i walked out of that thinking i had just seen the best movie i'd ever seen I called up a woman who was a friend of mine, but she was also a stockbroker. And I said, is it possible to buy 20th Century Fox stock? (laughs) And she said, well, why would you want to do that? I mean, movie studio stock is just, it's a horrible stock to buy. It's too risky. And she said, what kind of money do you have? I said, have no money. Well, she said, you could buy it on 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 margin, Mm -hmm. Right. right? I said, well, what do you think, Fran? She said, well, you know, maybe... If you, if you want to take the risk, you could buy $1,000 worth of stock on margin. Mm-hmm. So I did that. And I paid off every single debt I'd ever had. <laughs> I had a little bit of extra money. And a year later, when, um, when I went to see the, um, the cast and crew screening of Jaws, I called her up again. And I asked her if I could buy universal stock on margin. <laughs> and she said, sure and um, and then I later found out that not only had I bought it but she bought a big chunk of Universal stock and she put all of her kids through college <laughs> with that stock wow. <laughs> and after that she kept on calling me what other movies are coming whatever they know <laughs> <laughs> anyway um, so um, uh, you did Star not War- do that with Golf and Western for Star no, oh, Trek Electric <laughs> anyway so, so no. get, getting back to the, the timeline here so um, when I came into Paramount, we would, you know, we had our we had our weekly meetings, and, and I remember pretty clearly that, and I, you know, Star Trek. I mean, Star War. Star Trek was not something that I w- was a fan of. I, I had missed it on television. You know, it had been when I was in in boarding school, so we weren't allowed to watch television. So. Um, Michael Eisner uh, said, "You know, he was he was everybody was wowed by the success of Star Wars and couldn't believe um, what had happened and 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 I remember him saying that uh, we're going to put Star Trek in development as a motion picture, and it wasn't because of and I've read this you know in several uh, of the um, uh, you know in like the Wikipedia right. article." I don't believe. I mean, my memory is not hearing anything about Close Encounters. Right. Mm -hmm. It was about Star Wars. Yeah. Um. And then.
0: Phil Kaufman tells a very funny story, though. He says when uh, they killed Planet Titans, which was his Star Trek. He said, this is a couple of months before Star Wars. And he said that the executive on the project said, there's no future in science fiction. (laughs) And he said that Star Wars (laughs) opened a couple of months later. Apparently, there was a future in science fiction. Yeah, right, exactly.
2: Well, you know, it's, I mean, nothing is new uh, in Hollywood. I mean, people write off genres all the time. And then somebody decides to do a fresh take in a genre. I mean, The Unforgiven is a great example Mm -hmm. of that. Everyone said Westerns
0: were dead, yeah.
2: Westerns were dead, sure. Um, And, and, uh... Uh, You were mentioning David Picker, um, and we were talking about this a little bit before we started. I believe that David Picker had said in, you know, his famous quote, because, you know, he was in charge of uh, green lighting pictures at United Artists and when he went to Paramount, that if I had turned down all the pictures that I made and made all the pictures that I had turned down, I would have the exact same track record. Because nobody knows. Nobody knows what's going to work. And all you've got is your own instincts. Mm-hmm. And if you're trying to second guess what the audience wants, you're dead. So, you know, the, 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 the best way to prepare yourself for that kind of job is to, um, is to be right in the midst of the popular zeitgeist, whatever that means.
0: So, the success, like the huge blockbuster success of Star Wars clearly provide the impetus. What do we have like that? We have a star. We have a star. We have a Star Trek. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. so, wh-
2: so Michael then says, um, we don't have a script. And we're going to release the movie uh, in, uh, at the Christmas of 1979. And I'm thinking to myself, there's no script. There's no director. Um, and they're going to do this enormous production. And it's literally... Um, two years away yeah there, there. you know this is crazy but hey mm-hmm. this guy was <laughs> in television you know let's go anything yeah. you know he <laughs> anything can be made quickly right yeah, yeah. um so he put um so he posed the question uh we need um we need a director
0: and um now, and Bob my, Collins was still on it at that point, right? From the TV iteration, Bob Collins, Robert Collins.
2: No, there was there was nobody. I mean, they had um at least as far as I knew, all there was was Gene Roddenberry. Right. That was it. And um and we were going to come up with, you know, the director. And of course there was a cast, right? And I don't think they even had um um a story yet. Um um so um, we're sitting in there and we're spitballing ideas. And I said, well, how about Robert Wise? And Michael turned to me and said, oh, wow, that's a really good idea. And the reason it was such a good idea, I think, from Michael's perspective, was that he was a good director, not a great director, um, but he was a great producer. Mm-hmm. And a movie that, that, that is this complex to make, you know, with all of the special effects and, and all of the... Um, the politics of uh, of Gene Roddenberry and 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 the and the and the, um, uh, and the baggage that he brings with him, um, I think that's what Michael thought was a good idea. I had known Bob um, since before I even came to Hollywood. Right. Um, I sent out a whole bunch of letters. He was one of the ones who answered, and I met with him. So it was uh, – and and then I went to work at United Artists. And I don't know, six months later, um, Mike calls me into a meeting, and there's Bob Wise. And uh, we're considering uh, – Mike is considering whether he wants to make this movie that Bob had brought in called Audrey Rose. Right? Mm. And it was out of that experience that Bob and I became really good friends because he – um, kept on asking me what I thought. Mm-hmm. And, um, and um, he, there was this, he was kind of, he loved the idea of young people and he loved the idea of helping young people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, we would work together and then every once in a while he would invite me over the house for dinner. And this is before he moved into Century City and he had just met his new uh, bride because his, his wife of, you know, of 40 years had died. Mm-hmm. And um, they were still living out at the beach house. And I remember one night he invites me out for dinner and he said, would you would you like to watch a movie after dinner? And I said, oh, that would be great. Well, what would you like to watch? (laughs) And I said, well, um, would you mind if we watched West Side Story? And he said, well, not at all. Why would you want to watch West Side Story? Because I said, Bob, I want to hear what you have to say (laughs) about West Side Story. (laughs) So we watched West Side Story, and I had, sitting next to me, the actual director, producer, giving me his comments while we're watching the movie in real time. It, it It was one of those... You and know, his for, screening room, right? I mean, it's, it's his pre-VHS, yeah. beta room. max. Yeah. And he had, a, he had his own print, too. Yeah. So, you know, the stories about him and Jerry Robbins and the fighting and all of this kind of stuff. Anyway, so Bob and I really became great friends. And um, so when I called him up and I said, Bob, uh, we're sitting over here trying to figure out, you know, who's going to direct the Star Trek movie. Is this something you'd be interested in? Can you come in for a meeting? So he came over for the meeting and because... It was my relationship. I sat into the meeting with michael and and uh, and uh, Don Simpson and Bob Wise and myself. And at the end of the meeting, Bob said that he would do it. And um, and so Michael um, Michael had decided that I was going to be the um, studio executive uh, responsible for the picture because of my relationship with Bob. And so it was my job then to figure out how we're going to get a script written.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, there, and and um, by this point, uh, Gene Roddenberry had a treatment. He had a, like a three or four page idea, which was basically the vizier idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read it, and I thought, well, this is pretty good science fiction. One of the things that Gene Roddenberry, well, the reason why Gene Roddenberry was so successful is because conceptually, he was a great storyteller. He had great ideas, he had great um, uh, uh, um, uh, concepts, and every single one of those Star Trek episodes was a great science fiction concept. What if, right? Um, so he had come up with this, and I think he was a little worried that we would not think it was so great. So. He he put on all you know, he, he turned out all the the dogs and the ponies for the dog and pony show. I remember we had a phone call with Isaac Asimov, I believe, who um, you know, who was who's talking about the the um uh the, the true science behind this so that this would impress me somehow. Right. I was already The wormhole is a
0: real thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. No,
2: I mean, no, I actually thought it was a, it was, I didn't need any of this. I thought it was right. a good, I yeah. thought it was a really good idea. Um, and then he got this guy from NASA involved.
0: <laughs> yeah. Those guys. Jesko, Von, Puttkamer. Je- Jessica Puttkamer. Yes. Puttkamer. yes. Yes.
2: Right. Yes, von Puttkama. <laughs> right. We have a Him running gag with
3: hit. that name on this show. Uh, okay. <laughs> and uh we're we're familiar also with Also known as with,
0: Jessica Van Puttermaker. Right. <laughs> right. Yes.
2: Along with you... Werner von Braun. <laughs> yes. yes. All yes. of those ex Nazis, right? <laughs> right. Um so um uh so, you know, I was the one I mean and 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 um um Gene kept on, you know, um he was lobbying for his choice of a writer, and who he wanted was Harold Livingston, mm-hmm. who was a TV writer. And I read, you know, a couple of Harold Livingston's things, and he was a TV writer. He was not good enough to write um, a feature film. So, um, uh, you know, my job at UA had been finding writers, overseeing writers, and um, and I went through my list and settled on Dennis Clark. Um, who had written for us Comes a Horseman that Mm -hmm. Alan Pakula had made. Not a great picture, but it was well-written. And I thought that Dennis had a sense of scope in his writing um, and that he might be able to do a good job. So he was brought, we made a deal, he was brought on. And I think three weeks in, he calls me up, from we had given him an office on the lot. He said, "I can't do this anymore, Tom." I said, "Why? What's wrong?" He said, "Gene Roddenberry is driving me crazy." Mm-hmm. Um, he said, um, "He wants to see every single page that I'm writing as it comes out of the typewriter, and um, and he is marking up every page, um, telling me that um, my th- that the technical jargon that I'm using." Is incorrect. It's not six parsecs. It's six point five parsecs, and he said, "I can't work like this." He said, "Can't you let me write a draft, and then I'll turn it in?" So I became the you know um, I became the um, uh, the person who was the rodeo clown who was who was uh, shuttling back and forth, Mm, you know, doing the um, negotiating between the writer and and, um, and uh, Gene. But what Gene really wanted was he didn't want Dennis at all. He wanted his own writer. He wanted somebody that he could completely control. And uh, finally, it got to the point where it was either Dennis Clark or it was Gene Roddenberry. And I went into Michael and I said, Michael, we are going to lose Dennis Clark. And I said, the only solution to this is to tell Gene that he cannot work uh, on the script until there's a draft. And Michael said, Tom, um, I understand. He said, you're right. But he said, all we have are the Trekkies. When this movie comes out, that's all we have. And he said, um, if Gene makes a stink, um, we will lose the Trekkies. And then we will have no base audience for this picture. Mm-hmm. So if we don't, um, he, said, I, he said, I'm sorry, but we're just going to have to deal with with Gene. I'm having the worst PTSD
1: right now. Go on. My anxiety and I will be fine.
2: (laughs) Yes. I mean, can you imagine not supporting, you know, I mean, this was my job was to support the talent, to support the writers. Yeah, Um, I got into a lot of trouble with that on Airplane later on. Mm. Um, Actually, after the movie, before the movie came out, I got fired. Really? Uh, yes, I did. I supported the actors um, a- in a fight with Michael Eisner, and I—I I
0: mean, the support of the writers in a fight the, with Michael the, the Eisner. Zucker brothers and Jim Abrams. Yeah. Yes,
2: that's right. And and then um, the movie was finished and ready to ready to be released, and I got fired because I wasn't a team player. Mm. So um, the movie came out and became the huge at, at the time, the single most profitable movie Paramount had ever made. The budget and the budget in in Wikipedia is wrong. The budget was one point one million dollars, <laughs> and it did one hundred million dollars in rentals. Wow, wow. Um, But I got fired. Um, so you know my and and I what I had learned at um, United Artists was that you you support you support the talent because it's the talent that's going to make uh, either make or break you. Right. Right. So. Um, Anyway, so, um, and Bob Wise, um, you know, Bob was an old school director. He was really good at executing the script that he'd been given. Um, And he was a good producer. He could put all the pieces together. But he didn't have the storytelling skills and the creative skills to um, be a collaborator on a script. Mm -hmm. He was very unlike the great talent of people like Scorsese and Spielberg and Coppola and all of the, the great talent of the nineteen, you know, sixties and seventies, uh-huh. the writer directors.
3: Right.
2: So um, while Bob was frustrated by the process, the script was the script, you know, and. Um and I then had to deal with, you know, Harold Livingston script which was just awful. Just awful. Sorry Harold, sorry Harold, I'm sure that, you know, you're looking down on us right now but, you know. No,
0: Harold's still alive. He is. Oh, yeah. Even like, worse. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Could be an He's going to send Could somebody be. to send somebody to my no, house. No, he hates
0: to talk about Star Trek the motion picture. Yeah. Well, yeah,
2: he... I mean, he, you know, um uh, I, I mean, in in all of this, it was Jean. It was Jean who was trying to who was controlling every little piece of this uh, script and storytelling. And um and that was, you know, that was uh, uh, that was my biggest memory of where we were and the next thing that happened after all of that. Um, the movie starts, you know, we started production and I would be able to go over to the set every day, but there was not much more I could do because at that point, you know, the, the, you have a script, you have a producer and director, right. um, and, uh, looming on the horizon was, uh, post-production and all right. of the, uh, and all of the, um, uh, uh all of the, uh, special effects, which I didn't want to think about. I thought, well, I'll deal with that later. Right. This, you know, this is something we have to deal with now. So one day, um, because our offices were within like about fifteen feet of each other, Jeffrey wa- Jeffrey Katzenberg walks into my office, and we were pretty much all on the same level. You know, we were all production executives. Somebody, some had you know, little better titles than other people. Um, Jeffrey had come out of. Uh, the New York office of Paramount. He'd been in marketing and uh, publicity. Mm-hmm. He'd worked for Gordon Weaver, um, who was, you know, very uh, wonderful, famous, uh, you know, iconic iconic figure in Paramount marketing. Sure. Uh, the man who came up with the idea of the midnight screenings of um, of um, Mommy Dearest oh. <laughs> for the gay community, you know? And the idea, the guy of, you know, no wire hangers. No wiring, that was his yeah. idea. Um, and Jeffrey had been lobbying for about a year to come out to Los Angeles to work in, in uh, production, uh, you know, as one, of the, as one of the production teams. So he ended up coming out about three or four months after I started. And uh, he ingratiated himself with Michael by doing absolutely everything Michael wanted faster than any, anybody else could, mm-hmm. and he got the uh, he got the nickname of the Golden Retriever, right? And because he, he could got,
0: famously said, "If you don't come in on to work on Saturday, don't bother coming in on Sunday." Right. That's right. <laughs> right. I mean, this is
2: after we went to uh, to Disney, but you know, he was um, he was um, uh, he was amazing. I mean, I you know, he was the reason why he got became so successful is because he was so motivated. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, he had been—he had actually uh, retrieved the the script and the 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 um, uh, the filmmakers uh, uh, Jerry and David Zucker and Jim Abrams uh, in bringing in the airplane script, okay? Hmm. Because Michael Eisner had gone to dinner um, with an old friend of his and uh, that he'd grown up with. Um, a woman who was a reader at United Artists. and he used to he used to tease her. Isn't there anything you can tell me about? What are you reading over there? I want to you know tell me about something that I can make. <laughs> and one night she says, "Well, actually, Michael, there is a script that I wanted them to make, but they're they're not interested. and it's uh, it's a satire of an airport disaster movie. And because Michael was, you know very good at the log line, mm-hmm. he said, "Oh, that sounds great." Mm-hmm. So he said to Jeffrey, go and find me that. Wow. Jeffrey finds it, brings the three guys in, and Jeffrey gets assigned to the picture because he just happened to be there. Right, right? <laughs> So um, one day, Jeffrey walks into my office and we are in the midst of um, you know, probably a week or two into um, uh, principal photography on uh, Star Trek. Mm-hmm. He walks into my office and he says, hey, Tom, um, how would you like to trade half of Star Trek for all of Airplane? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Well, what do you mean, Jeffrey?" He said, "Well, I don't know anything about post-production," and he said, "This is going to be, you know, a huge project to do all of the um, all of the special effects," and he said. He said, you know, um, if you're at all concerned about, you know, having all of your time eaten up, he said, I really want to learn about this. So he said, you know, uh, if, if you would let me do that part of the picture, um, I'll just give you all of Airplane. Hmm. And I said, well, I'd have to read the Airplane script first. Um, and so I read the script and I did not think it was funny. Mm. I didn't get it. But but instead of turning it down, I thought, well, let me me talk to the filmmakers. Because, you know, the filmmakers tell you what it is they are going to do, how they're going to make something, right? right? So I brought the three of them in and I said to them, um, you know, we're thinking maybe of switching, you know, the person who's going to oversee this. And can you tell me, um, you know, what your concept is here? And when they said, well, um, we're going to play this as completely straight all the jokes are going to be on this. Nobody is laughing at this mm-hmm. on screen. And the minute they said that, I got it completely because I uh, had been schooled in uh, sophomoric humor, you know, in college, yeah. doing the hasty pudding show, hasty yeah. right? And your read of the script was not wrong. No, it wasn't funny because it's it's zero out. It's zero, hours, exactly. <laughs> yeah. right, that's right. And and I and they had already done like seven or eight drafts on zero, and I said, you know, guys, I'm sorry to say this, but you're you're you know you're you're losing a lot of the plot here. I mean, you've got to care whether the plane lands and the boy and girl get together. Right. And most of that is gone now. So I'm going to send you back, and I'm going to tell you exactly which scenes need to be reinstated. Hmm. And they were like, oh shit, we have to go. <laughs> so they they came back with the script, and that's the script we ended up shooting. Um, but. Um, it was the best deal I'd ever made mm-hmm. because I didn't have to worry about the special effects, which turned out to be the single biggest problem that Star Trek had. Yeah, yeah. And the budget went from $15 million to over forty because of the special effects. And right. poor Jeffrey had to deal with it all. Yeah. Um, and it was a total nightmare. And thank God I didn't have to deal with it. And I got to do Airplane, which yeah. was, you know, it was like being back in college. It was so much fun. With the exception that Michael Eisner, you know, insisted that we needed to have uh, Barry Manilow as the
0: star of of, uh, of uh, Airplane. Oh, God. Wow. Because Foul Play had done so well. That's, he had this the song. I found a, a Barry Manilow. There's something you know, about there's, that. There's, there's, there's I an, ridiculously that's another podcast. That's
2: and podcast. And it was... And um, I actually uh, undermined that whole project. I mean, that whole idea. Right. The guys actually said to me, I, I went over to them because Michael said, I said, my, I said to my, when Michael came up with the idea in our staff meeting, um, he said, well, we're going to have Barry Mantle as the star. And I said, Michael, uh, I can't go over and tell the guys that because they'll leave the studio. He looked at me <laughs> and said, then your job is to convince them to stay. Oh, geez.
0: Well, you know, this explains a lot. This explains why Airplane is one of the great movie comedies of all time. And Airplane 2 is one of the worst. (laughs) That's right. That's true. So I go back to, I go over to their office,
2: right? Um, And their office was right next to Bob uh, Evans' office. And um, they're playing Nerf ball. And you know they weren't doing any work; they were just playing nerf ball. <laughs> so I come in, and the nerf balls are flying across the room. And I close the door, and they stop and look at me. Jesus, Tom, are you okay? It looks like you've seen a ghost. I said, "Okay, guys, listen. I don't have some. I have some bad news. But you have to promise me that you'll give me twenty-four hours. Okay? That you won't do anything after I tell you this." And they said, "Oh my God, what is it? What is it?" I said, "Well." Michael Eisner is insisting that Barry Manilow star in the movie. And their faces dropped. Oh, my goodness. And then they started laughing. and And they said... You got us! You got us! That's the funniest thing we've ever heard. Because you know they used to get me. They used to toilet paper my car. They used to you know play pranks on me. And they this is what they thought. Goodness. That's genius. That's and I said no, no guys, really, it's true. No, no, you don't have to. You know, you know. Really it's it's. I said, and then there's a knock on the door, and Howard Koch, senior, who had been the head of production of the studio, and um, you know he was being kept on. And we were working through his deal. He was in his, probably in his uh, late 60s. And he had been assigned as the executive producer of the movie Mm -hmm. as the kind of the Potter familiast, you know, to make sure that nothing went wrong. He knocks on the door, opens the door, and, and, oh, hey, Howard, what's going on? Tom just told us a really funny joke. Um, And he said, guys, did you hear the news? Barry Manilow's going to be in our movie. Now, they knew that (laughs) Howard had not one single ounce of you know of humor right. in his body right and they looked at me and they said well we're leaving then I'm sorry we're going to leave this we're going to be leaving the lot we're not going to make the movie here I said guys you promised me you would give me 24 hours <laughs> so I went back to my office closed the door and picked up the phone now Barry Manilow had a production deal with us okay and he was trying Michael Asner was trying to find you know projects for him for to him do him, yeah. right And we had given him money for a young development assistant. And because I was the low man on the totem pole, I was assigned to oversee the deal. And I called up this young man who I'd had lunch with. And we had talked about the strategy of, you know, of getting Barry Mantle in the movies. And I thought, when I said to him, I said, well, you know, the very first movie that Barry does is going to have to be, you know, a really... Um, experienced director, somebody like, you know, like, um, um, what's his name? Uh, uh, Ross, uh, who had directed. Uh, Herbert uh, Ross. Uh, Herb Ross. Yes. Yeah. Somebody like Herb Ross. Right. And he said, oh, absolutely. Yes. He's got to be protected. Blah, blah, blah. So I, uh, called up this young man. I can't remember his name, but anyway, he said, Hey John, how are you? Um, I was just came out of a production meeting and, um, uh, Michael Eisner is telling me that um, Barry Manilow might do uh, airplane. Can you tell me, you know, what, ha- what, you know, wh- where this comes from? He said, "Oh yeah," he said. Sue Mengers sent over um, a t- pile of scripts, you know, from the various studios that um, that are, you know, that are in production. And he said, and you know, and I I was reading them all, and the one that really stood out was, was airplane. And I thought, oh, fuck, just my luck. The only guy in town who thinks this movie is right. viable because everybody else thought this is a piece of shit. Who's going to make this movie? Right. So he reads it and he goes back and he says to Sue Mengers, he said, wow, this would be great for Barry. Right. Wow. And I said, um, I said, geez, John, I said, um, um, I said, do you realize that the uh, three guys who wrote it are also going to co- co-direct it? I said, this is only the second movie they've ever made. And, um, and I said, we have a really, really low budget. It's going to be like a million dollars. Um, and there was this long silence. And he said, really? He said, they, this is only their second movie? I said, yeah. I said, you know, it could be a gigantic hit. Because, it, you, you know, I think it's going to be amazing because it's so funny, but it also could be a gigantic flop. <laughs> this is really a risky project. And so oh, he said, oh, well, let me think about this. And he hangs up. And about 20 minutes later, my door is closed. And it's right next to Michael Eisner's office. And the door slams open. And Michael... Michael <laughs> strides across um, uh, the de- to my desk. And I'm like startled, and he puts his hand on the desk and he swoops everything across the desk. And he said, he said, Barry Nanlo is not gonna be in the movie and it's your fault. <laughs> and I said, Michael, you're kidding me. Barry's not gonna be in the movie, what happened? He said, you know what happened. You, I know you did this, I know you did this. Oh my goodness. And, and I said, Michael, Michael, I don't know anything about it. And he said, he said, don't ever talk to me about that picture again, ever. <laughs> oh my God. And, and as we were making the picture, I would, you know, I would, you know, I would come over. I would say, Michael, why don't you come back to, to the set? I mean, it's so much fun and the guys are having a great time. And John Patak at, at um, William Morris was their agent, would call me and say, don't you guys want to make a, like a two or three picture deal with them? And I, and I would try and Michael, would, you know, he, he would not hear of anything. Wow.
0: And, and only when he saw the
2: picture did he realize that it was going to be a
0: huge hit. The amazing wow. thing is, had Jeffrey not traded pictures with you, he would have done Eisner's bidding. Yes, exactly. Barry would have been an airplane, and none of us would remember it. And it's script would have been That's right.
2: That's right. That's, no, that's exactly right. Anyway, so um, I do remember, though, that, it, uh, that when Star Trek was uh, when we were just at the end of the process, and poor Jeffrey was not at the studio anymore. He was he was at the special effects houses. Mm, right. He was at the lab, and um, he tells but, a story about you know putting thousands
3: of miles on his car, driving back and forth between true. Marina yeah. del Rey yes. and Van Nuys. And, yes, right. you
2: know, and then the um, and then um, they had to make the um, because you know Michael uh, two years before had set the uh, release date as Christmas December seventh, nineteen seventy nine. Yeah. Yes, and. So um, uh, it was right down to the wire, and they, they um, rented a hangar out at LAX. I believe that that's where it was. And the lab, uh, and they had and because it was a wide release, there were, you know, thousands of theaters. So they had lined the film cans up, mm-hmm. and they, the lab was making one reel at a time, okay? And they and the and the and the cans were all lined up and the reels were going in and then they would get to the next reel and it would go in. And finally, I don't know what it was, but just a couple of hours before the be, you know, before um, the planes were to take off, they finally finished it and they were able to ship everything out to the theaters by the next day. And it finally got released.
0: And there's that legendary story how the National was playing it before they got the final reel, and that was being hand-carried really? wet to the National. Uh, Probably true. Yeah. Probably so, true. I. Uh, w- how did your relationship with Robert Wise uh, uh, go? I mean, I, I obviously, <laughs> you got him into this mess. You know what? <laughs> he
2: didn't blame me. Mm-hmm. And I felt terrible that it was basically his last film. Um mm-hmm and i felt like i'd ruined his career you know to put your mind a little at ease when i got to work with him for
3: about a year and a half on the director's edition back right. in in 2000 he could never stop singing the praises of you wow huh. that you were the you know you know one of the the points of uh, of light during that production
2: wow that's and, nice to hear
3: and wow you know because of his experience doing the film he hadn't talked about it for 18 years right um uh, after after it came out but as as we were able to sort of bring him out and have him talk about it again and you know give him the extra 2 months of post production that he desperately needed um he was able to finally you know mold it into uh something that he was happy with and you know, he he talked about you, you know, glowingly, and wow. uh, he wow. he never he never blamed you for it. So,
0: wow. and there was plenty of blame to go around. <laughs> there
3: sure was. There sure was. He
2: was, was um, a gentleman. He was a wonderful, wonderful man, and um, my uh, my husband, who I we've been together now for almost twenty five years, mm-hmm. uh, I introduced Bob to him, and Bob couldn't have been you know more wonderful. Um, and Juan, um, who is a you know internationally well-known uh, portrait artist, who flies all over the world doing these these wonderful portraits, um, he was so excited to meet Bob. Um, was so excited to just have you know this this um second hand or you know one step removed one you know uh 6 degrees of sep 1 degree of separation right. removed from all of these incredible films that he had done and bob's um health and career you know came to um you know slow down and then it was very sad because you know he couldn't get projects made and he still wanted to right. Um, he had to close his office down, um, and by this point, he and Millicent had moved to Century City into, okay. a, into his beautiful duplex. Okay. And um, he, um, he was very, very depressed that he had to give up his office yep. in Beverly Hills, yep. very depressed. And Millicent calls Juan up and says, Juan, do you think you could help me um, by recreating Bob's office in the house here? Mm. And we won't tell him. And you know, you'll you and I'll go over, and we'll take everything out of the office, and I'll leave it up to you to recreate his office. And Juan has this, you know, fabulous artistic sensibility. So Juan spent the day, um, and Millicent said nothing to Bob about it. And then when Bob came home, um, they took him down to the new room that Juan had created, and he burst into tears. Oh, what a great story! And um, and of course, you know, Juan just loved meeting you know, people like George Securis and, sure. and the, you know, the cast from from uh, uh, Sound of Music. Sure. And uh, um, so uh, he, he, Juan loves to collect, you know, faded movie stars.
0: Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, what, he didn't want to meet Shatner and Nimoy and, and George Takei? What's wrong with the... <laughs> well, you know,
2: uh, speaking of which, um, George Takei uh, and Juan and... and George and, and uh, Brad... Uh, and, and Juan and I have become great friends over the last decade or so, and he comes to the house for dinner every once in a while. And um, when, when um, I mean, I had remembered him, of course, obviously, who would forget, Good friend forget sure. George? He didn't remember me at all, and we were sitting at dinner <laughs> in the house, you know, it was a dinner party, and he had been brought by, he and, 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 and Brad had been brought by mutual friends. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, George, we do share something in common, and it's uh, Star Trek, the motion picture. What what is what is it about Star Trek? I said, well, I was the studio executive in charge of it. He said, you were. <laughs> you you were not. responsible for that that horrible experience. Um, it was difficult for everybody. It was a very very tough movie to make, and and um, you know uh, because the movie was successful, um, you know in terms of box office. Mm-hmm. Got terrible reviews. But it was successful enough for the studio to barely eke out a profit. Right. Right? And at the time, I thank God that somebody uncovered what the real budget was. Because Paramount tried to keep it a secret for, you know, years and years and years. Do you know that it cost more to make than Heaven's Gate? Yeah. Which destroyed, destroyed United Artists. So up to that moment in time, it was the most expensive movie that had ever been made. But the the difference,
0: unlike Heaven's Gate, is it it made money regardless. It made money, And
2: Michael Eisner was absolutely right that if Gene Roddenberry had walked off the production... All the Trekkies never would have come to the picture.
0: But you know, it's funny. We we talked. You talked earlier about how Star Wars and well, Jaws and Star Wars changed the business in terms of blockbusters and no longer so doing platform releases, these wide releases. But Star Trek changed the business too because it really is one of those seminal films in terms of showing an IP launching yes. a movie mm-hmm. franchise. Yes. Star Wars was original concept. Yes. So you right, say Star Wars right. was a you know. You know, just as much as, you know, cries and whispers. I mean, it was original. Right. But uh, but Star Trek was based on a quote-unquote failed TV series. That's and right. we're still living with the, the, the impact of Star Trek's success That's all right. these years That's later. Right.
2: And um, Michael had a lot of issues as a leader. And um, he had some really... He was really, really talented at, at at some things, and he really needed to get out of his way, his own way, on other things. Mm. But one of the things that he was so talented at was understanding um, the idea of a concept and and what the audience was would 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 buy. And he he had been incredibly successful uh, with the movies of the week. He just didn't quite know how to apply that. Um, in terms of a um, development process um, at Paramount. Um, but um, all the, the scripts that we never made, that, that you know, the six of us, seven of us, you know, who are doing production um, development, um, were are stuck with. Um, the pictures that did get made generally got brought in by agents who would already packaged them. Mm. And Michael was really, really good at recognizing... Um, uh, really exploitable ideas. So you know whether it was um, whether it was uh, uh, Heaven Can Wait or whether it was Foul Play or whether it was Grease or whether it was Saturday Night Fever, you know that that was that was why he was so successful right. at doing that kind of thing. And and um, and um, he, I think that when he decided to do Star Trek. Um, as a film. His hope was that it would be good enough that you could do, you know, um you could do sequels. Right. And he was smart enough after the first one to get rid of George. I mean to get rid of uh, Gene Ryan. <laughs> yeah. sure. Because Jean Gene, Gene was the biggest impediment to a successful, you know, series. Because he thought in terms of television. He didn't he didn't have the ability to think in terms of motion pictures. Mm. You know, he he was he he never really knew how to recognize good writing.
0: Well, I wonder, you know, is this an apocryphal story and maybe it didn't apply to your tenure at Paramount, but there was always the talk that when uh that Paramount they said, "Well, we it, we want to do Star Trek, but we have to cast somebody like Robert Redford as Captain Kirk. We can't like use the TV actors." Had had, had that abated by the time you came on board or was There was no talk of that whatsoever. Yeah.
2: No. I mean, and the, and the thing is is that that you know, Michael's Michael's um, realization that the Trekkies were going to either make or break this picture, right? They never would have accepted anybody but the original mm-hmm. cast. That's
0: right, yeah. But And then you never, uh, there was never a sense also that you needed a a guest star of of some kind of stature. You could cast Stephen Collins or Persis Kambada, but there was never talk of like, oh, well, we need a movie star to be in this or to, you know.
2: No, um, because I think that um, it was just remember, Michael came from television, and so Star Trek loomed large in the TV mm-hmm. universe. Yep. um, and um, and I think that he really thought that it came as a package. The show was the star. The yeah. show was the star, mm-hmm. exactly, exactly. Wh- and And like it or not, Gene Roddenberry was, you know, was part of that. Yeah.
0: When you look back at the film, you know, and obviously here 40 years later, we're still talking about it. There's no question that uh, you know, it made a lot of money. You know, would, it would have made uh, been a lot more profitable had the special effects situation not been what it was with the whole Bob Abel, you know, Doug Trumbull, which right. you were spared, mercifully, uh, yes. thanks to uh, Jeffrey. Um, but when you look back at it, uh, you know, is there anything you would have done differently or any regrets when it comes to or anything you would approach now with all the experience you have under your belt in this business? Uh, or, you know, was there uh, n- n- no no... Was there no way... To solve it. <laughs> there was no I way think to solve there, it I don't time. think
2: there was a way to solve it. I mean, at the time, I thought that um, Michael should have backed, um, you know, Dennis Clark, and we should have gone forward, in it, and it would have been a much better movie. But he was absolutely right. There was simply no other way to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the movie was going to either rise or fall uh, on all the Trekkies out there and their loyalty to Gene Roddenberry. Right.
0: When the show, when this, the movie was in production, uh, there were all these legendary stories, of course, about you know the timestamps on the scripts. You weren't just getting colored pages; you were getting time dated wow. because uh, Livingston would do a, a, a rewrite, and then Gene would rewrite him, and then Livingston would rewrite him, and Gene would rewrite him. And, rewrite him, and throughout the day, you get you know two thirty p.m., 4.05. So you know they're getting it. You know how much of that were you playing referee on, or, or at that point zero? That was all Bob. That,
2: that was all Bob's problem. Yeah. Luckily. I mean, you know, when you're a studio executive, um, the actual making of the picture isn't your job. The development of it is getting it to the the starting gate is your job and getting all of the pieces in place. And then, like it or not, you have to turn it all over to the production team. And you just have to hope that they um, can, you know, can bring their... um, you know, their baby, um, uh, into the world. Um, but you set up the sandbox. Yeah, that's, I mean, um, it's, and, and, um, anybody who works at a studio thinking they can do any more than that, they're nuts Yeah. because you don't have the time. I mean, you've got, you know, you've got 30 other scripts that you're, or 15 others. Plus you've got, you've got, um, Uh, the the studio was getting 50 projects a day for us to consider, Mm. okay? So you have a reading staff that is reading stuff for you, and then you take a look at the reader's reports, and on top of which you've got agents um, who are lobbying you to read your script anyway. So based on your relationships, um, I was reading probably 15 scripts a week. That's a lot. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and then on top of that, you're reading, you know, new drafts of stuff that's coming in that you have in development. Plus, you're taking meetings.
0: Plus, Plus you're, you're sabotaging Barry Manilow. Yeah, right. <laughs> you're, you're, we're saving airplanes. Doing, our doing anything look you at can it. do to stay sane, <laughs> right?
2: I mean, I ended up, that was probably the most stressful three years I've had in my life. Right. And I ended up with uh, dislocating my jaw by clenching my teeth. Wow.
0: wow. And you know also you put the, I mean it's a remarkable below the line team on that. I mean from Jerry Goldsmith, uh, you know, to the music, to Harold Michelson, production design, beautifully production designed I mean, Um Bob Fletcher, the costumes. I mean, yeah, you know, he bought, you know, the, all the tools to do, you know, and and um, I think everyone here would argue, you know, it's a magnificent looking picture. Mm-hmm. Well, when Bob came in, he took a look because Gene thought that we were just
2: going to use the sets they'd already built. Right. And when Bob came in, he took a look at the sets. And, you know, it was kind of like he, you know, he did a spit take. Yeah.
3: yeah.
2: Because they weren't, you know, feature film quality. So they had to go and rebuild all the sets all the way from scratch. Right. Yeah. Um, and it, they looked fabulous. And, you know, new costumes and, you know, I don't think the cast had ever, you know, looked so good. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I guess the the, um, uh, the biggest unkept secret in Hollywood or in, in the make, making of, um, of narrative storytelling, you know, on you know, on film or television, wherever you make it, is that if you don't have a good piece of uh, of writing, if you don't have a good script, there is nothing. Um, every once in a while, you get a picture that somehow makes it somehow ends up being good without having good script, but that is a mystery. Mm-hmm. Maybe in the making of it, you know, um, things got fixed, but. Um, there are only a handful of really great writers um, in the business, and, um, and they aren't on all the time. They, aren't, they, they don't deliver a great piece of writing all the time. Writing is the hardest part of making um, film, and uh, the writers um, are treated the worst. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, I can see Ashley over here. I can see <laughs> yeah. the tears, yeah. you know, know. coming. coming. <laughs> um, you know, this is what I spent, you know, 20, 23 years doing, is working with writers. And um, in any given year, there were maybe, maybe um, seven or eight great scripts mm-hmm. out of the thousands yeah. that people were writing. And part of that was due to the fact that There are a lot of writers who think they're great writers because they can write great dialogue. Mm -hmm. But great writing is really all about telling the story. And storytelling is a rare, natural ability at storytelling is a really rare talent. Mm -hmm. Um, Most people have to learn it, have to learn the craft of it. Um, And even then, it's hard to do. Um, So um, it all starts with a great script. And if you don't have a great script, forget it.
0: Well, I have to say, this has been a super treat. This has been a great one. So uh, we're, t- we're so appreciative, you know, for you coming in. I know uh, there are probably so many other movies in your career that you would love. <laughs> <laughs> Love to talk about, it. but we made you talk about Star no. Trek: The Motion Picture, and I went way over our time too. Oh, I'm sorry that's, about that. That's it's quite okay. all right. It was worth it.
3: And you thought you wouldn't have enough to talk about
0: for right. an hour? We could, oh, look, I, we could go on another hour, but you know, <laughs> so uh, but we're not going to because uh, the people uh, the next podcast will be very upset. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> but thank My you, pleasure. Thank you it's for a lot joining of fun. us, of Glorious Trexperts. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you may want to check out Electric Surge's other podcasts, like the 4:30 Movie every Friday, uh, as well as the Rebel in the Rogue a Star Wars podcast every Tuesday and Best Movies Never Made it's one of my favorites Best Movies Never Made every other Monday and uh, you can also watch video podcasts of your favorite Electric Surge podcast on the Electric Now app it's currently uh, check out Stir TV and Distro TV which you can download from the App Store and it'll soon be available on the Electric Now uh, app for streaming so check us out uh, or listen to us wherever you listen to podcasts also if you enjoyed this podcast please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts finally a very special thanks to uh, Bill Ritter our sound uh, engineer extraordinaire. Bill, good episode, wasn't it? Tom is a, fascinating. Excellent. I know, right? I, 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 man, I could just, go, I wanted to, I could have talked about United Artists for another two hours before we even got to Paramount. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, thank you Natalie, our producer. That was good. We kept you awake during that one, right? Yeah. Which isn't always the case, so thank you. <laughs> and best uh, special thanks to Dean Devlin without whom this show would not be possible. So, uh, to everybody out there, we'll see you next Saturday, and keep on trekking ingloriously, of course. Shh, engage.